name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us ready to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not temptation. Lead us from evil one. And grace you, our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, dokie. So, um, this week's chapter is, I think, a really, it comes off, I think, is very just straightforward, but I think the concepts in it are so fundamental to spiritual life, um, and there are things that I think come up over and over and over again. So, I've taken notes from this, for this one from the book. Those of you who haven't um, gotten the book or have been reading the book, I'd really encourage you to, um, to wrestle with it and not just to get these kind of summaries that I'm giving. Um, summaries are nice, but going through like his th thought process, um, I think is really good. But this one, I've tried to intentionally leave some room for um, questions um, and maybe where things go, because I think Dorotheos, Abba Dorotheos almost speaks like it's the obvious, because uh, it is to him. Um, but there's a lot of places that this topic goes to and that has implications for. Um, and I, yeah, I'll leave it at that. So this chapter, The Fear of God, I think is a, a highly not understood concept where we tend to think that fear of God is supposed to mean um, terror, um, or cowering, um, or, or things like that. And while for some people that might be a natural consequence, it's not what is necessarily meant by it. Um, and I think when people hear things like uh, worship God in fear and trembling, or um, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom is, is a verse that we use a lot, and it, it will make its way in this chapter. Um, I think somehow socially it's come to mean like that fear meaning terror or petrification um, as opposed to maybe what is meant by it. So we'll go through Dorotheos's thing first. I might add my own thing. I might have the temerity to do that um, at the end of it or, or in the middle of it as usual. Um, and then we'll open it up. So Dorotheos in general is very methodical. So he always starts off with a verse or a saying from the father um, and then starts working from it. So he starts off by talking about how um, the verse from St. John saying that perfect love um, casts out fear. I no longer fear God um, for uh, perfect love casts out fear, which as we're going to get to, and as we'll quote the great St. Anthony um, like to quote, because anything good and holy has got to come back to God. And then at some point St. Anthony. Um, so, <laughs> He starts off by saying, okay, a perfect love casts out fear. Then he, he starts off by asking two questions. What kind of love is it that does this? And what kind of fear is it that's cast out, right? He's just very methodical. Um, and he goes into scripture because he knows his scripture so well. Um, verses about the fear of the, fear of the Lord, all you holy ones, all you saints, um, and others. So he says the rhetorical question is, 
if there's all these holy people, there's all these saints, whether from the Old Testament, the New Testament, modern saints, that, that feared the Lord, then why are we saying that love casts out fear if they clearly feared God? Right? Like, do they just not love? Like, it's, it's an interesting way that he meditates. Um, so he starts to explain it by saying, okay, there is actually um, two kinds of fear. Um, an initial fear. Um, he doesn't even talk about it, so the terror right away. So there's initial fear, which he calls the fear of beginners. Okay? And he says that this beginner's fear um, is afraid of not doing the will of God because they're petrified of the torture of death, of hell, of, of all that kind of stuff. So he says, so this kind of person doesn't do good for the sake of good itself, but for fear of punishment or retribution. He says the second kind of fear is the fear of saints, the, the fear of those who reach perfect love. And he says that this is the person who fulfills the commandment or will of God out of love of God, love for God, um, loving him um, in order to please him. Um, and he says that this kind of person knows what the essence of good is. He, they know what goodness itself is, right? He says that it, these people are the ones that understand what it means to be with God. And he says that this love leads to perfect fear It's a fe because it's a fear that, that reveres God or, or obeys God, um, not out of fear of punishment and not to escape torture, but actually because this person may have tasted the sweetness of being with God. Um, and this person might fear falling away from um, that sweetness, fears being deprived of that great sense of peace and joy and love that, that springs forth from being with God. So, but he says that this kind is the product of love, right? And it's what banishes out that first kind of fear, the beginner's fear, the one that's afraid of it. Um, and what I think might be very comforting for all of us to hear, um, because most of us might be like, well, I might usually be in that first kind, um, is that he says that you can't get to the second kind without the first kind. Right. So he's just like, it's, it's, it's not possible for you to, to even get to level two if you don't get to level number one, um, which is honestly very comforting. Because when you hear like stories like Omini Irini, where it just seems like she came out of the womb in level two, um, then the rest of us feel like there's no hope for us sometimes. Um, but then he actually takes it further um, to discuss these different levels that people can be in. This is something that my father confession growing up used to talk about a lot. Um, this is one of those aha moments when I was reading the book when I was younger of being like, so you stole it from here. Um, but this, this piece that he's giving that I'm about to get into these levels, I want him like really understand them and, and where, how far reaching this concept can be um, in your spiritual life. Like it's about fear of God, but I think it has far reaching implications. Okay. So it says level one, as we talked about is slave. Okay. These are people who fear God because they're afraid of torture. They're afraid of hell. They're afraid of condemnation. They're afraid of getting in trouble. Um, these are the people who are in uh, level one. 
that's the slave because a slave does what he does because they they're worried about punishment right so that the the slave would be in fear category one like so if we're going to subdivide we have fear level one right and fear level two this level that we're talking about of of slave falls under fear category number one okay level two is the hireling um in modern english paid worker okay this is somebody who fears god or listens to god because they hope for reward they hope for benefit right so this is a person who's like yeah i go to work because i get a paycheck right this is a person who says yeah i'm doing good because i want to go to heaven not afraid of hell but i just i want to go to heaven i think that this person still falls in fear level one right this is still a person who is not doing it for the love of god um and that's why level three which is the only level i think that falls under the higher level of fear the one that love casts out and, and the, the, that love brings to this level is the level of a son of a child where we do good for the sake of goodness itself right this is a place where we reach a state where we don't do good out of fear but a special love for our dad and a special love for our father and a reverence for him and and a person who's in this level is convinced really believes that everything um belongs to god and that god is happy to share these things but that nothing is our own right this is this is the highest level right and it's this level that the great saint anthony says and abadurthus quotes um where he says boldly i don't fear god anymore because i love him um and perfect love casts away fear um and we're going to get into some of the, the details of this but i want to summarize this chapter first but Dorotheos then goes on to give um a meditation on Abraham that really moved me even more than I've ever read it before because I think a lot of us um meditate on Abraham a lot but I I never thought about this part and even previous times reading Dorotheos I don't think it really clicked for me quite what he was saying he says okay Abraham is this 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 image of somebody who loved God in the highest level right which I think we'd all agree on um and he says you know he's asked off for his son but even before offering his son he's left his land he's left his people um and and now he's being asked to give his son the one thing that god promised but the reason why he's giving this as an example is saying that if abraham was on level 2 i do good because i'm going to be paid right the level of a, of a hireling is like then he has no reason to offer up his son right his son was actually the product of level 2 it was it was a promise of reward right but here he is being saying give up your son and there's nothing being offered in return right it's not like god is saying hey abraham give me your son and i'm going to give you more right he just says no abraham just give me your son um i never paid attention to that before right where like this is i i this was a eureka moment for me but um or at least a a deeper moment um and so he's saying like that's the kind of love of a person who just loves their father so deeply that they just trust right 
Um, and again, he emphasizes, we still need that first kind of fear first. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning and the end. And by the fear of the Lord, everyone departs from evil. He's just quoting all the scripture that extols the fear of God. So he says that we might start as a slave, but we come to sonship voluntarily. The taste of good is what changes us. The taste of good is what affects us. Um, and so, like, I want to dwell on this for a second, this taste of good, because I think that we talk about sin all the time, right? And I feel like like the, the Christian platform, if you will, always starts with sin. And I think that even sometimes when we, and we'll get to this, this whole does God punish type thing. Um, I've met people who are afraid to talk about level three, afraid to, because they said, if we talk about level three, why would anybody do good? Right, where it, it betrays this underlying belief that we need to be petrified all the time or people will never do good. That if we don't talk about sin all the time, people will never be holy. But I think that when a person has tasted good, as Abba Dorotheus is saying, they have a much stronger reason to not do wrong. Right? Like, like they've, they've tasted holiness, they've tasted goodness, they've tasted joy. Right? If you spend your time always talking about potential disease and never about how nice it is to be healthy, right? then you just, you've built up a really negative mindset. Um, Pope Krulus, um, the great saint of our time, he bore insults, right? He bore insults because he tasted grace. Right, because of this taste of something else that's so tangibly real, it made dealing with the hardship so much easier. Right, because he's leaning on something real, not on something theoretical. Right, where this tasteness of the sweetness that he had with God meant so much more to him that he could have entered the rink and the brawl and the arena and just gone at it like everyone else was doing. Um, but only because of the joy of sonship that he felt did he feel this need to be loyal to his father, right? Um, and because of it, he tasted the consequences of holiness, right? Of being like that, I, I, I suspect me to be like, why throw all of this away, right? Why throw health away in pursuit of disease? I enjoy health, right? Um, it's almost to me like trying to tell someone why they should get out of their house and see a real sunset rather than a photo, right? Or rather than just sitting in a basement, right? That somebody who's seen a real sunset knows how compelling it is, right? That if you try, try and convince someone who's never seen it and that sits in their basement, they're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, whatever. Right. But if you've tasted it as, as, as real, it's almost like I like to hike. Right. And so when, when virtual reality came out with um, these glasses that you can just go and be out in nature with glasses on, it's like, but, but it's not real. Right. Like there's, there's, you, you can't smell the trees. You can't feel the exertion of it. You don't feel the reward of a long hike 
um, to come out to this beautiful vista or just to see the animals, right? Um, so you can you can pursue what's authentic or you can settle for what's fake, um, but what's real is real and casts out darkness. Um, there are some things that have to be experienced that talking about doesn't do anything at all with, right? Um, and that's why it says, who can separate such a person who found true good from the love of Christ, right? This person is in the dignity of sonship and loves good for good and fears from love. It moves from terror to reverence. So what's a way to start? And this might seem really like a strange solution. He says, start by departing from evil and do good, as the psalm says. At the beginning, when you cut out the bad, something is happening, right? Like you're getting healthier by, by mere virtue of, of stopping the bad habit. However, you need to fill that time and space with something. Right. I remember when I was a pharmacist, like there's these rituals that people are used to, for example, that, that smoke. Right. Um, psychologically, where this mouth to hand ritual is a real thing. Right. Where we know that doesn't make even even like psychologically, we know that when people stop something, there needs to be something in its place. So we used to tell them, like, use baby carrots. Right. Eat something healthy. Right. Understanding that there's something that needs to go in its place. You're not going to know how to just stop suddenly. Right. The same thing with almost all sins that you struggle with. Right. Is that whatever sin that you were doing with occupied time, occupied space, occupied thought. Right. And so you're going to need to fill in all of those things with something. And the psalmist is saying, put good in its place. Um, and he says that that's how the soul is going to move to the level. Because when you say, OK, here's these three levels, slave, hireling, son. How do I move through? He's saying it's going to be gradual, right? It's going to be gradual by starting with stopping what's wrong and putting in something that's good. There's work in it. Um, and he really emphasizes his work thing. And one of the examples that he uses is one of the verses that says, seek peace and pursue it, right? And he meditates on this and says, okay, it's one thing to want to be peaceful, right? But there's work towards being peaceful. There's striving. He goes, so for example, let's say you start striving. He's using just as one example, you're striving towards peace. So you start pursuing peace. What is the automatic output out, uh, outcome of anybody seeking to do anything good? Battles from the enemy will arise, right? It's not going to be like, oh yeah, two thumbs up. I'm your fan, right? There's going to be an immediate um, thing. And he says, now, this is where labors and asceticism works, contrition, fearing the return to evil, to slavery, starts to move us from submitting to the enemy, right? This is the place where almost everybody automatically lies down, right? Where it's just like, where they're being like, I don't know what's wrong with God, right? I decided to give my dad a chance, right? He's always yelling, he's always screaming, he's always picking on me, or my mom, I'm always picking on dads, or my mom, right? And so, and the minute I just, you know, give her the benefit of the doubt that maybe she's not a monster. What does she do? First opportunity, she makes this comment, right? No, I'm not doing this, right? Why? You were seeking a virtue and the devil's like, I'll tell you why you shouldn't, 
here's what's so messed up with your mom. Let me push all your buttons through your mom, right? But if a person says, no, this is exactly when I was supposed to start my ascetic labor. And we tend to think that asceticism is just the sleeping on the floor, coarse clothing, etc. But of saying, no, how can I bring my body into subjection, my sense of subjection to pursue this right thing, this holy thing, this virtuous thing? If I start doing that, I've started resisting the enemy, right? Suddenly I started resisting and now I can start progressing. Now something is going to be different, right? Saying that that's where it starts. So in this peace analogy, um, he says, you might not just want to be a slave anymore when you see that something is coming out of it. You might start pursuing it because you like it. Right, not because it's right right away, because of the effect. Right, this is the equivalent of somebody who's starting to enjoy a proper diet because people are saying, "Wow, you look good." Right. Ideally, they want to be healthy so they don't have illness, so they don't have diabetes, so they don't have heart, blood pressure issues, or or anything like that. But there's, he's saying that once you started working on it, you lost a couple of pounds. You might be excited that people are complimenting you, right? That you like this. He's like, so you just suddenly. Maybe you didn't want to ever lose weight, but now that you've started, he's saying, and you started to realize, you know, when I put up a little bit of a fight and I got my calories counted, people started saying, you look good, right? And he's like, so suddenly you moved to level two and you didn't even realize it. You went from slave to hireling just naturally, right? Your soul has moved up a step. But in this struggling, he says, you might feel the rewards that come, help from God the habit of good, a taste of rest and peace. And so you start seeing, wow, it's different to be in the sorrow of illness than it is to be in the joy of peace, right? Suddenly I'm saying, I don't like, I don't like being in a fight. I actually really like being at peace. And suddenly, without you even realizing it, you're seeking peace and striving for peace because peace is good. Virtue for the sake of virtue itself, right? This is the example that he gives as one of the examples he gives as moving through the stages. Um, so then he says, how do you then know that the right fear of God is in us? And how might we lose it? Right. And he says that a man acquires fear of God if he has the remembrance of death and hell before himself. He said that was the starting point. Right. And so he, he actually brings out an exercise that just so happens to be one of the ones of the great St. Anthony. Um, but he says a person should test oneself every evening on how the day was spent and every morning on how the night was spent. And these will help keep someone in balance. Um, now, I'm just going to bring it back for a second to say that, why does this have anything to do with the fear of God? It's because it's this recognition. It brings together what we talked about before, that I'm supposed to be a certain way. And if I respect, if I fear, if I revere, the one who made me this way, then I'm going to go back always and say, how am I supposed to be? 
And so this reflection is saying, am I bringing it back to my, my natural order or not? And that's why he's starting there. But we're gonna, we are going to come back to that. If that was not coherent because I don't make sense, we will come back to it. But he adds something onto this exercise that Alba Anthony gives um, by saying I he would also add that a person should not keep bad company on the one hand, depart from evil. He's taking this to depart from evil and do good to another level. Saying, don't have bad company and always have in close contact someone who does fear God. And I can say as a as a servant and, and with certain experiences also as, as a priest, this is not limited to just priesthood, but I've seen it more intimately as a priest, how incredibly important that, that piece of advice is, right? So many people start to go wrong when they're in the wrong crowd. But it's so much harder and longer to come back if you do at all when you cut off ties from anybody good in your life. Right. Um, I'll pause and even say I've always I've had always the blessing in my life since since I got relatively I want I don't want to use that I became serious but care to be serious um, about spiritual life. I want to say from 17, 18 years old of like becoming more awake. God's always allowed in my life certain people with the gift of, of clairvoyance um, of people who can who can see me as I am that know my sins, that know my thoughts. Um, and I, honestly, it can be very uncomfortable. Um, for a lot of people, I've got to say, I love it. I love it. Um, because it always forces me, me as me, I'm, I'm a human like everyone else who wants to sin all the time, um, that it brings me back into that reverence and awe of, of, of actually level one. <laughs> just the wrong kind of fear right of just being able to be like okay like i'm exposed great because it almost forces me into level two and three right because there's also a joy when some of those people are like good job i can see that you're struggling i'm like yes um high praise right but in that state i've also tasted what it's like to be close to god right and so we're going to all probably re regularly cycle through levels one through three, right? It's not like you're going to be in level three all the time, always doing it for, because it's good, right? That there's probably going to be a regular cycling between the two. But having that person who's holy is great. Tan Samira, God repose her soul. Um, I've said this about her in that blog, but I remember um, her tracking me down to make sure that, she, that I knew, that she knew that I was sinning. Um, and it was so ridiculously annoying, um, but also really, really helpful. Um, where it was like, she said, everybody, like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you ill? Everyone thought it was a health issue. I knew exactly what she was trying to get at. It was not, it was not physical health. Um, but that presence made me constantly want to repent. Because even if I was going to be visiting and I knew she's going to be at the house that I'm visiting at, it made me like limit FC, like before I go, right? Or just feeling this need to, to do it. So it's, it is equally important, not just to stay away from bad company, but to have positive company, right? To have these, these people that, that bring us back to ourselves. Um, and so he quotes to make his point, a Desert Father story where, where a young novice says, what do I do, Father, 
in order that I might fear God? And the answer of the elder was, go and live with a man who fears God. And by the very fact that he fears God, he will teach you also to fear God. And that is one of the reasons, and I think everyone makes fun of so many things at church and in culture that I'm like, I don't know if you realize the benefit of it, right? Seeing somebody walk into church and revere an icon does something to you, right? Seeing somebody who's afraid to do wrong makes you question why you weren't afraid to do wrong. Right, seeing seeing the 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 power of holiness just it's it's to bring it back to what we talked about in the first two talks. It's light. It's being in the presence of light. Once you're in the presence of light, you're forced to see yourself, right? And that's why being in the presence and the company of holiness um, is is so powerful. Um, I've talked about Ember Race a number of times, but even just as a kid, not understanding a word that he was saying and feeling safe in his presence, right? Was something that I was I have never shaken till this day, right? That it was, it's the spirit recognizes the holiness of another and it does something, right? It's some, it does something very powerful. So then he's gonna get into what can make you lose this and it should be so logical, um, but it might not have been the first thing to come to your mind. He quotes Abba, um, Agathon, Agathon of the Desert Fathers. He's another incredible Desert Father. He's always like, he's always a three-pointer. Um, where he says, there's no passion more harmful than audacity. For it is the mother of all passions. It is so on point. Um, because to fear something, to give it either reverence or trepidation, okay, either one, is to acknowledge that you are lesser and it is higher, or you wouldn't fear it, right? You're not going to be afraid of something that you feel you're above or have control over, right? You don't need to, you don't need to right? Because you're already above it. So the opposite of this is audacity. Right, so it makes perfect sense. I'd never personally seen it worded in this way other than in Dorotheus. Um, because audacity is to see the other thing beneath you. It's worthy of contempt, right? So it ties to all previous talks of his so far. You are not the standard, you are not the author. So to fear the standard, to, reveal the, to revere the standard or to revere the author is to recognize that you're created and its creator. Audacity is to flip it upside down with presumption, right? It's so simple and yet so mind blowing um, and, and puts everything in order. Um, and so he's gonna give some examples of audacity that I wanna read um, and think about when you're hearing this, this list, I'll try and read it slowly because I tend to talk too fast. Think about what you must think of yourself and what you think of others if you cross these boundaries. He gives these, again, as examples of audacity. He says, there are many forms of presumption. One may be presumptuous in a word, in touch, and in glance. From presumption, one may fall into idle talking, speaking in a worldly way, 
He does something humorous and inspires others to unbecoming laughter. Audacity is also when one touches another without need. When he raises his hand at someone laughing, pushes anyone, takes something out of another's hand, shamelessly looks at anyone. All this is what audacity does. All this comes from the fact that in the soul, there is no fear of God. And from this, a man little by little comes to complete carelessness. So let's zoom in on a couple. If I speak idly, it means I don't have a reverence for words and their power. I don't care if I speak of something of which I have no idea or whether my words might cause someone to fall or whether I'm gossiping or lying. Or said differently, it means I see my freedom of speech as more important, superior to sound speaking. I've had audacity towards proper speech. Or in the case of gossip, lying, etc., I revere myself more than others. It's, it's not something we might think about regularly. If I touch someone without need, I actually believe myself to have superiority over the other person's body or space. That, that can lead to taking something from someone, which means that I audaciously think that I have right over other property. It's just his, his insight into like that specificity is, is really impressive, right? Of how little the things are that they start with. If I look at people in the wrong way, I think that I have greater value or reverence due to me and that I can view them as an object, right? From which to take gratification instead of treating them with reverence. If I look at somebody lustfully, I viewed them as an object. I viewed it as something I can take, that they are there to gratify me, right? It might not be how you viewed lust, right? But there is definitely an audacity in it that we might not have thought about, right? And we tend to look at it from the other side of what can I do? How can I help myself? Even, even I might like fight, but I might be like, well, what am I supposed to do? That person is just dressed like this or one, two, three, four, five, right? Which there may be merit. I'm not going to get into that, but it's saying, but did you look at it the opposite way of how my wrongful viewing is a wrongful view of the person, not just of the virtue, right? Not just about how I view purity, but how I view other human beings, right? That's a, it's a, it's a, Really interesting challenge. He's so astute, I think, in what he sees. So audacity is scary because it puts you above others. And it might be totally unnoticed, but it's the opposite of fear. It's the opposite of reverence. So our carelessness with this passion is why we offend each other. It's why we have warfares with one another. It's why we cause each other to sin or stumble, he says. If we feared God above all, if we feared truth, if we revered rightness, we would not have any issues. 
we, we should fear harming oneself or others. So Dorotheus says, if we really had a proper fear of God, if we see others doing wrong, he said we would neither be silent nor judge, which might not be what you're expecting, nor will we reproach or speak evil, but we might go to a person who can correct that person. Because our reverence is about rightness. It's not about the person, right? And I wouldn't be viewing it as, as I'm right and they're wrong. It would be what's right is right. And something might be dangerous here, right? It even gives you the freedom of how to approach. Um, he says, think like, to me, think of what that means, right? Because I think many people would hesitate to do this. Right, we'd be like, oh no, no, like I, I don't think I could say anything, right? Myself included. But if I believe that something is itself truly wrong, how could I be silent? Right? If you see somebody about to kill themselves, would you be silent? Now, I like using this example because a lot of friend crews struggle with this concept, right? Nobody wants to be that guy. So if your whole crew is cussing, which is wrong, would you speak? I think most people would find some reason to not. If a friend of yours is committing adultery, cheating on their spouse, would you speak? Up until maybe a couple of years ago, most people would have said yes. Today, I think less people would say yes because I think we're more accustomed to evil. But most people would have said yes before. And I'd always ask, so where did you draw your magical line of what you talk about and what you wouldn't? Because whatever it is, is clearly not the gospel, it's you. Right? So if I believe in rightness and if I believe in health, right? It's funny because like as a society, we seem to be okay with that. We're okay with creating laws, right? That govern people's behaviors and morals, right? We're, we're, we're not afraid to demand of people to behave in a particular way that brings about health. Um, but as we'll see next week in one of the homilies of um, St. Shenouda that I think a lot of people are also uncomfortable with, St. Shenouda calls out the hypocrisy and says, you know, it's mind blowing to me that people are upset when we say, you know, the church is supposed to be a place for the holy. Like, why, why are we okay with sin? Because, like, you know, even contemporary society in his own time has standards, right? That you have to dress properly, that you have to behave in a particular way, but apparently in church, we don't care. So I just think it's, it's interesting that even with this, that we'd probably be very uncomfortable saying something's wrong, but we don't in other places. He says that you could also say something to the person with love and humility. You could say, he gives an example, forgive me, my brother, if I'm not mistaken, we might not be doing this right. Right? And he said, even make it a we. Um, he says, okay, that, if that doesn't work, right? So let, let, I'm just trying to give an example. He's thinking of a monastery, right? So let's say the novices are fighting. It could be like, hey, guys, maybe 
maybe we're not doing this right. We shouldn't be fighting. What can we do? Right? It's like you can you can make it a we. How can we approach this? How can we? But but not to just ignore it. Because or we might go to a person who can correct that person. And I think again, many people would have hesitation about doing such a thing. And I've seen a big shift in that in the last 10, 15 years. My generation, I don't think we'd have actually, when I was in high school, been that uncomfortable with that. Right? I wouldn't be that uncomfortable if somebody had gone to a servant or a buna and come in, and they came and talked to me. It actually wouldn't have bothered me at all. Um, and it wouldn't be weird to me that someone did that. Um, I think today people would be weirded out or upset by it, but it's maybe because we don't look at the truth the same way. But um, but if I really believe, again, then would I stop? So he says, um, go to someone the person trusts, maybe his elder, his abba, uh, depending, and he says, depending on the importance of this sin, right? So that they might correct him and then be peaceful. He goes, but, and this is a huge um, however, but the aim is true correction, not idle talk. And he says, it can't come from a desire to reproach or a desire to accuse or a desire to condemn. And he says, you cannot pretend that you are correcting this person when you know that you and that person have beef. Right? So he, he calls on the exception. He goes, if you do it out of any of those reasons, now it's a sin. Right? So he says, no. So I, I'm saying, note the self accusation before doing it. It's mind blowing to me because this chapter on self accusation is so much later in the book, but it comes up like every chapter before it, right? Of just starting with the self accusation, right? To the pure, all things are pure. A person who's not thinking any of those things isn't even going to think twice about talking. Because there's, their heart is pure. They are not trying to cause an issue. They really actually just care, right? It's, it's sincere. It's from the heart. Um, and he says, if it's not pure, don't do it. And he goes, now, what happens if you're in a situation where you're not sure? You do have beef or you know that you might have a desire to gossip, but at the same time, you're worried. He goes, then, if that's the case, go and tell the Abba about what happened, the scenario, as well as what's going on in your own heart, right? Both, just bring up both, right? I've done this um, even with my own bishop before, right? There's a scenario that happened where somebody says something in front of me about a very important thing where they were saying that, you know, we were told that leave this issue with me, I'll hook you up, right? A priest saying that to the person right, over an issue that was a really big deal. It was actually a marriage issue, right? Where it's almost like, yeah, yeah, I got you. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll get you this divorce. I have no idea if it's true. No idea. It could be completely made up, and that would not shock me. People make up the most ridiculous things sometimes. But there was still a fear, sincerely, of, but if that's true, then this is very wrong, right? So I went to my bishop and just said, Sayyidina, I'm not going to name names or who told me or what priest allegedly has said this. I'm in this situation and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Right? Um, because I don't, I don't have a desire to get anybody in trouble and I also don't want to make anybody look bad, nor is it even my job or my role or my place to investigate it. 
you're the one in charge. You're the bishop of this diocese. So it's right here, right? Um, and so Sin is like, thank you. No, not interested actually in this case, who? Because this committee already has a process. That can't happen even, even if that was ever said, it can't happen, right? But my conscience was relieved, right? And I can go back to the person who was concerned and say, don't worry, that's not a thing, right? Because I had no idea it was all brand new to me, right? That's probably um, a bad example. But I've also had to go before of saying, there's a scenario that happened. I know that I'm bothered by this person and I know that my ego might be hurt. So I don't know what's the right thing to do. Should I just stay silent and learn the virtue? Right. But this exposure is what gives you the freedom. Right. Um, so he even gives a script for it. He goes, he goes, you can even just go to this Abba and say, my conscience bears witness to me that I want to speak for the sake of what's right for my brother. But I know that I have mixed thoughts in me. I don't know if this is because me and him have had an unpleasant encounter in the past or whether it's a temptation of the devil to hinder me so that my brother is not fixed, but this is what's going on, right? And he says, and just leave that to the Abba to tell him whether or not he should speak. I did this once with his eminence, I'm a servant, when I was as a novice. As a novice, I, mean, I read this book, obviously. Um, I kept my mouth shut because I was sure that I wasn't pure. And I waited eight years before I finally asked um, his eminence what should have been done in a situation like that, when it was so far removed from the event, where no names had to be there, where there's no purity issues, where there's no way that the person would be known or be in trouble. And the reason I'm saying it, because I usually talk about only what I've done messed up, is that it fits to this chapter that I felt joy at that. Right. Like I felt joy that there's a peace that comes from covering one another. There's a joy that comes from not exposing one another. Right. That you can love the virtue for the sake of the virtue um, instead of enjoying the outcomes of, of what looked like a temporary joy at the long. But he says. God himself. God himself, if you're afraid of what might happen. He says, God himself will protect from disturbances when a person is pure. That even if there's a potential for it to go wrong, but I was sincerely pure, God will protect. He will do what's right in that situation. But a person speaking for wrong reasons or idly, it will always result in more conflict and more issues. Um, again, if we have the fear of God, we'll treat each other with reverence. Cutting off our own will is a reverence before God. Putting our neighbor first is the fear of God because it's his commandment, right? It just naturally follows. So I'm going to read, this is a little bit longer. I just want to read the story he gives in his own words of himself, of what he went through, because I just think it's a really good story um, to get to the, his, 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 his um, application of this. Uh, and then I might tie some pieces together and open up for questions. So he tells the story, sorry, my allergies are acting up. He tells the story of his struggle at the monastery. He says, when I was still in the monastery of Abba Cerritos, it happened that the servant of Elder John, the disciple of Abba Barsanufius, got ill. He contracted a disease. And Abba ordered me 
to serve the elder. I kissed the very doors of his cell from the outside with the same feeling that another might have when bowing down before the honorable cross. So glad was I to serve him. Indeed, who wouldn't be, who wouldn't desire to be vouchsafed to serve such a saint? His every word was worthy of amazement. Every day when I finished my service, I would make a, a matanya, a prostration before him, so as to receive forgiveness from him and depart. And he would always say something to me. The elder had the custom of repeating four expressions. And as I have said, every evening when it was time for me to depart, he would repeat one of these four expressions to me among other things. He would begin thus. Once I said, for the elder had the custom of adding to every talk the words, once I said, brother, may God preserve love. The fathers have said that through preserving the conscience with regard to one's neighbor, humility of wisdom is born. Again, another night he would say to me, once I said, brother, may God preserve love. The fathers have said, flee from everything human and you'll be saved. And again, he would say, once I said, brother, may God preserve love. The fathers have said, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Every evening when I would go out, the elder would always give me one of these four instructions, just as someone else might give instruction to one setting out on a journey, and thus they serve to guard my whole life. So he's reminiscing, I had this great time getting this valuable advice from my Abba. I love him. I'm, I'm learning. He's blessing me. He's teaching me. Right? Everything is good. However, despite the fact that I had such love for the holy man and was so concerned with serving him, as soon as I found out that one of the brothers who also desired to serve, uh, sorry, desired to serve the elder and was therefore sorrowful, I went to the Abba and asked him, saying, it is more fitting for this brother to serve a holy man than for me, if this is pleasing to you, O Lord, O Abba. Okay, so again, just to make this scenario a little bit more clear. He's getting to serve at the feet of this great saint that everybody wished that they could be discipled to. He's benefiting. He's getting these words of life. He's having the time of his life. But he noticed that there is someone else who wishes that they could be the one to be with this saint. Right? And he's noticing that it's impacting them. And so now he's going straight to the Abba and saying, hey, Abuna, I think, I think that this person, it might be better if they serve you. Right? He's going and interceding for his brother to the Abba. But the Abba and the elder of the monastery both said, no, you keep serving him. And he says, I did everything in my strength to choose my brother over myself, right? That my brother be the one to be allowed and I was not allowed. I did everything in my strength for my brother and spending nine years there. I am not aware of any time that I said a bad word to anyone, although I had an obedience so that no one might say that I did not have it. And he says, believe me, I recall that one time a certain brother who was walking behind me from the infirmary, from first aid center, to the church itself was walking behind me, insulting me the whole way. I walked in front of him, not saying a single word. And when the Abba found out about this, I do not know who told him about it, right? So this guy's insulting him. So the scenario is that they think, they think that Abuna just wants the glory, that he just wants to serve the elder. They have no idea that he interceded asking that they take in his place. Now these monks all think that 
he's this guy who thinks the world of himself as prestigious that gets to be among the saints. And so they don't like him and they're walking behind him and insulting him. He says nothing of them insulting, but somehow the elder finds out that this has occurred and it's not from Abadur Theos. And that elder goes and wants to chastise the brother that's insulting him. And he goes, I went and fell at his feet saying, for the Lord's sake, I beg you, do not chastise him. I sinned. This brother is not at all guilty. Right? He goes and intercedes for him. And another brother likewise, whether to tempt me or from simplicity um, or whatever it is, God knows why, for a period of time, and I know this might be scandalous to some of you that this happens in a monastery, but he says, for a period of time, he would release his water over my head every night. Um, I lost my line. So that my very mat was made wet by it. So some guy's dumping his water on him. Another person is hurling insults. Likewise, also certain other brothers dusted their mats in front of myself. So much so, and this is brutal. I've had bed bugs once. I saw a multitude of bed bugs had collected in my cell so I did not have the strength to kill them because of, the, of how many of them there were. Later on, when I would lie down to sleep, they would collect on me and I would fall asleep only out of pure exhaustion. And when I arose from sleep, I would find that my whole body had been bitten. However, I never said to any of them, don't do this or why are you doing this? And I do not recall that I ever pronounced a word that would disturb or offend a brother, right? Dorotheus is a G. And I, I, I love that he tells these stories, right? Like that he, that he brings in these experiences that he, that he has, right? Of saying that there's a duty to correct on the one hand, but there's a duty to, to protect our neighbor on the other, right? Of saying that what is my reason for speaking when I do? Right, because if I'm speaking because they're they're treating me horribly, then it's about me. It's not about truth. Right? It's not because of the truth. It's because I am personally affected. I am personally bothered. Right? Um, he was reverent, fearful of others, in spite of what it cost. Right? Look at his reasons for wanting to leave the service. How many of us, when we want to leave a service, is it because? we're worried about them not having their way, right? He's like, let me, let me leave this blessing of the serving of the elder so that my brother gets his way. We usually would fight for our way. Why should I lose the blessing just because so-and-so is jealous, right? That's not fair, we would say. And he's saying that the fear of God is to put the gospel first, is to put truth first, because the, the gospel is God's identity, right? It's image and likeness. So for me to not do that is to be completely in opposition to God, right? And God himself put himself under us, right? He died for us. He put himself beneath us, right? Not, not above us. So he says that love will cast out the wrong fear this ascetical love this athletic love that he's describing this covering my neighbor this striving this is ascetical labor 
right? And he's saying, that's the kind of labor that takes me naturally from level one to level three. Because if I say, let me endure the insults, right? I'm going to do right. I started off by, okay, I, I'm going to fight for my rights. No one has the right. If we want to use this as an example of going through the levels again, I'm just making this up on the spot. Level one be like, no, no one should insult me like that. I want the immediate gratification of putting this guy in his place. How dare he treat me like this, right? Of going in and saying, you don't even know. I was asked to do this, right? I even interceded on your behalf, right? And I was told, no, and you're doing this to me. That's level, that's, that's not even on level one, right? That's, I'm going to take my right, okay? Now, if I say, I'm worried that God will hold me accountable that I didn't perform this virtue, right? That's level one, right? Of just saying, what if I, if God holds me accountable and says, but you judged your brother, you exposed your brother, you did this to your brother, right? I'm going to, I'm going to keep my tongue because I just, I don't want to, I don't want to be held accountable of being a bad monk, right? That's level one. Level two would be to say, when I started not doing that, when they noticed, when they found out that I was insulted and did nothing, I was respected more by the elder, by Abba. That's level two, right? I enjoyed this fruit of trying to do the right thing. But level three is to say, it's good. It's good to be humble. It's good to cover my neighbor, even as God does. Right? As God would like, so will I like. Right? And everything is better when it is right. Then I'm at level three. Right? I'm a son of God, and a son of God cares about what's right because rightness is identity. Right? Suddenly I'm in a completely different playing field. And then there's a power, this is what he talks about, where you love, the, love the, the good for the sake of good because you see that suddenly nothing binds you. The word of your neighbor does nothing to you because of the grace of God. Suddenly they're throwing knives at you, but the knives don't cause wounds because you're in Christ. Right? It's That's... A level that I haven't reached, but that's that that I, you might say is transfiguration. Um, I think that's a level that Abba Anthony and Pope Krulus reached. Um, but the key is that it's fulfilling the commandment of God in revering my neighbor. I revere God, right? I don't think it's 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 an accident that Christ said, "If you want to love me." Keep my commandments. What's my commandment? Love God above all and my neighbor as myself. Okay, Lord, well, then how do I love my, my neighbor? And he says, well, there is this Samaritan. And goes straight for the jugular. He says, you got to love even your enemy. Even your enemy is your neighbor. Choose them. And then he says, in feeding, clothing, visiting, comforting, rejoicing with any of these people, you've done it to me. So I cannot, so I'm going to, let me rephrase from the same epistle that this started from, perfect love casts out fear. The same epistle says, 
No one can say they love God if they don't love their neighbor. Then they are liars. Because how can you claim to love God whom you have not seen when you do not love your neighbor whom you have seen? Then I will say the exact same thing of saying you cannot claim to fear God if you do not fear your neighbor. Right? If you do not revere your neighbor, if you do not put above yourself everyone else, then you cannot claim to be living in the fear of God. Um, and that's why the opposite, audacity, is to disdain others. Is to put others down. And for this reason, I would say specifically, this is not the chapter, beware of sarcasm. Sarcasm is making sure that somebody is lower. Sarcasm has, has audacity built into it. Right? Be very aware of that. I think it's a disease of our time. Um, beware of many arguments and many debates. That's a sign of self-will coming out. If you're somebody who's very argumentative, somebody who's always debating or always taking things further, it may be a sign. It may be a sign that your will is, is, is out of control. So he finishes up with this cool concept that, that this rule of eights, he says, um, that apparently his, his disciples already know about, it's news to us. Um, and he says that getting a job done, if there's a work assigned, for example, in the monastery or some, something that you're just supposed to do, doing that job is only one eighth of what we're, what we're seeking. He says seven eighths of it is preserving your own state of soul unhar unharmed. And he says, if you can understand this, that the outcome of a task is only one eighth, but your heart, your purity, and your intention is the other seven eighth. He's saying, Would you give up the seven eighth for one eighth? Does that make any sense to you? So he says, It might be better to walk away from something if it's quarrelsome or leads you to break the commandments and to not fear God than to fight for the one eighth. He goes even for says, even if I, as your Abba, have commanded you to do a task and a disturbance or a harm arises, leave the work rather than harm the one and let the work be left undone. And then he immediately is like, this is not a fake excuse to just never do work and to constantly claim that your conscience is hurting you and to never do anything because you're actually worried about the one eighth. He's like, be real. But he's saying, but I really mean it. That that situation really does exist. Because it is better to leave with the purity of soul and to fear God than to throw that all away. Even higher, he says, even higher than to walk away, would be that you bow to one another, revering and asking each other, because then you'll be in the humility of wisdom, his first chapter or second chapter. Believing your neighbor is better than you, wiser than you, says you won't insist on your own way. That's a transformation that will happen. And then he quotes the great Allah Antony, who says, a man's life or death um, comes from his neighbor, right? To what extent does it go? If you fear God, you will keep his commandments, right? So are we asked to be terrorized from God? No. Should we be petrified at God? Not necessarily. 
I know there's a lot of noise around the idea. This is me now, not Dorotheus, about everybody wants to fight against this concept of fear of the punishment of God, of, of this terror of God, and does God really punish, etc. I think we'd be, we're missing the point. If a person has terror before God, that actually can be a sign of deep humility. Right? I think we want to be quick sometimes to be like, no, 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 no. God doesn't ask you, ask you to have that. And there's truth to that too. But you might be taking away somebody's humility. Right? That that person might recognize even more strongly than you the power and authority of God. That they really view themselves as truly under God. Right? Maybe they're not practicing it yet perfectly but they're not having a wrong concept, right? Because the opposite extreme is also wrong to treat God as your bro and completely forget that he's master and commander of the universe, right? There's an audacity in that as well, right? But if a person moves through those, then they'll be able to see, yes, God is my master. He's also my father and he's also my friend because he calls himself all of them. And he factually is all of them. Right, But that if I revere him, I will move from the terror to the reverence. Right, I'll move from that place of, of terror to reverence as I experience him more. Right, Where I will move from level one to level two through experience with him. Right, For example, the same Tansamira that I bring up of saying, man, I felt so exposed. When she would say, heaven is so proud of you as well, even when I'm struggling, right, would be a source of comfort to say, I thought they were angry. I had, I, I had a terror and I found out that that's not how they are. As I know God more, I'll shift, right, where it becomes, oh, wow, like, I feel more comfortable around you. I'm not as scared. Not because you're not worthy of fear. Not because I got over it, if you will. It's because I came to know you more. And as I came to know you more, I realized that you don't ask for me to lay down in terror. You, you care for me. Right? Then, as you grow and start to feel his direct graces... You realize, oh, he really loves me. He's dad. That's why Abba, Father, that, the Christ, that Christ says to us to use, is literally saying, call me, call me Baba, call me daddy, right? Call me dad, right? And so that same one who says, call me dad, is worthy of trepidation, but what has changed is our relationship one towards the other. Right, And in that development of relationship from knowledge about our father and experience, the two meet through humanity, the two meet through interaction, the two meet through grace, the two meet through relationship, and one, one through the other is transformed. The one transformed is me. Right, God doesn't change. Right, And that's where we become transformed by the love of God. Right, That's where we become light. Right, where, where we become all these things. And so this, to, to, to come full circle, 
This is why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This is why it is starting with the fear of God that all doors are opened. It's to put everything in its proper place. Um, to him be glory now and always age of ages. Amen. Um, there is a couple of questions uh, in the chat. I only see two. Um, and then um, if anyone wants to raise their hand and talk on here, uh, welcome. Um, I hear what you're saying about standing up for truth. Uh, can you discuss in the context of relationships one's role to correct? Some people say it's not a husband-wife role to correct the other. It's that about protecting them and putting the burden. Is that about protecting them and putting the burden on yourself? So I would take it even beyond just the marriage one, but I think the marriage one is a good one. Um, I'll also say it as priest or as a Sunday school servant. There's places where there's responsibilities or as parents, there's places where there is a specific role to do something. Um, and there's cases where we are equal. In a relationship of marriage, you are in a relationship of equals, right? But also this relationship of equals has a goal. And that goal is salvation and the partnership that those two have embarked on is supposed to be towards holiness. So there is a duty of one toward the other to take each other towards holiness, right? And I think that's why Dorotheo says, even among these novices and these monks, that they ought to correct one another. But I have to correct in love. I have to ask if I've overstepped my boundaries. I have to ask why I'm doing it. I've got to ask how I'm doing it. I've got to ask how well it's received. Um, there's a lot, right? That's something like it's 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 loaded and and it's it's something that I think definitely would needs guidance um, for both on how to do it because maybe one is correcting the other completely wrongly, that's possible. Maybe the other is receiving really wrongly. Um, maybe the other doesn't even have the, the 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 right idea and vice versa. Maybe the other has taken so much and is and is snapping at one point when it's become too much. Right? Maybe one person who started off correcting the right way has gotten carried away and views themselves as, as elders instead of equal. There's so many things that can be going on, right? So for example, um, if I'm in a if I'm a, a priest and I'm sitting with a group of youth and it's gossip, I think I should say something. If I'm in a in a crew of my colleagues, saying something might look differently, right? Because it's not my, my job necessarily to quote unquote chastise, which he said, I'm not chastising, but I can draw attention to it. I might say, hey, I feel like uncomfortable talking about this person when they're not here. It's different from saying, yo guys, like you're all gossiping, we're all gossiping, like what's up with that, right? But I might just be like, I don't feel comfortable with what's happening. Um, I feel like I'm speaking out of turn, right? Um, or there is a different way. I might message, I'm just throwing out hypotheticals, right? I might, after leaving, a, a, maybe I didn't speak up. Maybe I didn't feel comfortable. Maybe I thought something. Maybe I, maybe I participated and didn't even notice. I can send a message after me like, hey, I just want to apologize. I feel like I crossed the line of speech and was gossiping. And I would like to say sorry in front of you all. Um, because I ought not to have done it, right? 
Now, if I'm being fake and I'm not really meaning that, I'm really just trying to say you guys gossiped, again, to use Dorothea's advice, the self-accusation, then there's something wrong, right? But I think the key is in that self-accusation. Why am I speaking, right? And I think especially when it comes between spouses, something that spouses need to be careful of sometimes is I think without realizing we're often very selective in what we correct, right? Where like, we haven't corrected that we've been lazy. We haven't corrected that we've been gluttonous. We haven't been correcting um, the, the improper venting, but we correct the thing that irritates us, right? And that's what I'm just like, like that's worthy of some self-reflection, right? Of, of am I consistently correcting? And if not, what am I choosing to correct about and why? And it might reveal something in me that might not be fully in order, right? So it'd be good to have that going on. I know it's not a, a good answer um, in this uh, because of how loaded it is. I think a lot would need to be diagnosed about what's the right way. But to say briefly, is there a duty of spouses to correct one another? Yes, there is on some level. If we are striving towards the same goal, then yes, there is. But the how and the why and the whens and all that, I think that um, might need uh, its own conversation. Um, it's interesting how you bring the calling out of the calling out of other people when they cuss or do something wrong. Um, I was talking about this with other people and the response, they do not want to hurt anyone's feelings. Um, when explaining how this is a matter of sin of life or death, it was deemed. Sorry, I scrolled up too fast. Uh, it was deemed that I was fanatical. How do we combat these ideas? Is this a fanatical way of thinking? If not, in what manner can we expand that sin is truly one that leads to death? Dorotheos gives us a criteria of how, um, but what's your input on this matter? I, I think you've nailed it. Like, I think that the real issue is that people don't realize that it's a big deal. And I think part of the, the battle is you knowing why it's a big deal, right? If not knowing, I think makes it, harder to navigate right because it's just like well if i don't know why right like uh, let me use an extreme example like premarital sex premarital sex right when someone says what's the big deal why is there a problem if i get if i have sex before i get married and you don't know it's harder to have the conversation i'm not saying that you must i'm just saying it's easier when you do Right. For some people, it's enough to say because God said so. And honestly, if we were pure and perfect, that should be enough. Right. Um, but if I don't understand this image and likeness business. Right. I, I am going to struggle. It'll sound arbitrary. Um, so I think is. One, knowing why. Two, I think a good strategy sometimes is starting with the self. Right. Or just saying. Well, if you can't do it because we're Christian, could you maybe try out of respect for me? I don't feel comfortable with the cussing. And if we're friends, shouldn't we have respect for each other? If my friend says, hey, I hate it when you do X, that just didn't happen in his mind to be related to the gospel, out of respect for him, I'm probably going to try not to. So could you start off by revering me? Right? You might not use the word revere, but that's what it is. Respect. Right? If, I, if you're in a bad mood and I keep joking, you say, can you please chill? I'm in a really bad mood. And I keep joking anyway. You see it as disrespect. 
I told you that I'm in this mood and you keep on trying to, to do this, right? So that can also be a way, right? There's like knowing why is a way because it can lead to a good discussion. If the discussion is useless or not helpful, then I would suggest saying, could you maybe out of respect for me, not. Because then if you are to f- keep following Dorotheos's advice, keeping with bad company, forgive me, I don't mean that as a judgment of the people, then I might withdraw. And actually sometimes withdrawing fixes things. Because if you go to the draw and they say, hey, why did you leave us? Be like, well, I, I told you guys that I was uncomfortable with this. I asked you guys to please not. I bore with it and I tried and I did one, two, three, four, five, but none of you were willing. I felt that either how I feel is irrelevant to you guys or there's a lack of respect, but clearly we don't have the same conviction about things. So the only solution I saw was for me to withdraw. The problem must be with me. So I withdraw myself, right? It's like if the group just wants to do shisha together or only wants to club together. Right, where it's like, but I don't take pleasure in that, and I don't think it's compatible with who I want to be. I start with the I when it's too uncomfortable to say the we. We should be comfortable to say the we, and I encourage you to to say, I just wasn't sure that this was part of our identity. But if that's not going to work, then it's not what I'm going for. When you're not doing X, let me know. Right, by your conviction, I think that can be another way to, to get to it. Um, I think uh, the story of the prodigal son who's afraid to go back to his father was hoping to be a hired hand but then felt his love when welcomed with open arms is nice and this. I imagine it went from fear to reverence to at his goodness. Actually, that's, that's on point, 100%. Right? 100%. Um, a complete transformation truly in that, in that order. Um, uh, the book that someone's asking which book that we're referring to and reading from, um, it's um, Dorotheus of Gaza, Discourses and Sayings. Um, and um, I can hopefully, if somebody can in the comments um, on the Facebook, uh, put a link to the book would be great because I'm not on there. Um, and the recordings, uh, they go online after they're on the, there's a, a podcast link on the website. I'll, I'll send you a link to that. Um, I read ahead and touched on self-accusation. Can you bridge the gap between accusing oneself and having the fear of God instilled in us? I think accusing oneself is a consequence of fearing God. If I revere God and I care about being who he made me to be, I will always ask myself if I am that. That's, that's the core of self-accusation, right? And that if I also care about my neighbor, if, if, if my life and death comes from my neighbor and I'm worried about offending my neighbor and their salvation, then before ever being mad at my neighbor or accusing of my neighbor or being annoyed at something, anytime that I'm annoyed or at unrest means that I'm upset about something someone else is doing that I would rather not. If I start with me and say, no, I'm going to put my neighbor first because I fear God. What am I doing? Self-accusation. What am I doing that's causing this? What am I doing that's caused this behavior? What am I doing that makes my neighbor uncomfortable around me, right? Like, let's say somebody is lying. Instead of saying, what a liar, I might say, why does that, what am I doing that makes that person fear telling the truth in front of me? If I'm in a fight with my family, I'm going to say, 
instead of saying, why can't they just give up this thing and let me have it? Some accusation will say, why am I not willing to give up my right? Right? Like what Dorotheus did. Dorotheus started being like, why are they mad? I was ordered to serve this elder. He's saying, why should I have my way? Why shouldn't my neighbor? Right? So it's, it's, it's by bringing it all back to, to asking myself where I am the source, where I am the cause, where I am falling short. Never accusing my neighbor, only accusing myself will only lead me towards more holiness, which is to be in the fear of God. Um, is there a link for these Zoom meetings that go up by email? Um, there isn't right now, but there might be. Um, I'm trying, there's a, a couple of guys that God bless them that were um, working hard on the website because um, uh, I will be eventually in my next assignment having to do some online services. Um, and so the only way will be through the website. So there will be a way to like sign up for a notification when there's anything. Uh, so there will be that uh, eventually. Um, any questions from those uh, online uh, or live? Uh, thank you guys it's a heavy topic but i hope uh, uh love you guys too uh, if there's any um further follow-ups after cool it's a really 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 good chapter and a really good book um so please um uh if you have time uh read through it um i wish you guys all a very blessed uh, holy week um, obviously there'll be no meeting uh, next week um, and there will not be the week after. I always, the week after is my, I, I don't do any uh, formal services uh, the week after Holy Week. So there will be none that week. So we'll resume God willing in three weeks. Um, uh, so please uh, keep me in your prayers. All right, let us end uh, with prayer. In name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us ready to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but from you one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Love God the Father, grace and the God's Son, the communion gives the Holy Spirit with you. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all.